If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the 2nd of our August 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine's on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com for more information or follow us at twitter.com historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. Coming up this issue. The court of Elizabeth was admired by observers and it was seen as being a place that was full of magnificence and splendour, just as royal courts ought to be. That was Susan Duran on Queen Elizabeth I. It's one of the most important sites of telecommunication history in the world. Richard Noakes on Porthcurno. One of the most important dockyards, one of the most important ports in the world, uh, and a place that's so central to the, to the unfolding of our, our national story. And Dan Snow there on Portsmouth's historic dockyard. Our first interview is with Dr Susan Duran of Oxford University. She is our guide in the fifth and final part of our series on the Tudor Monarchs, and she'll be talking about Queen Elizabeth I. 
If you're new to the podcast, listen back to the last four editions and you can hear other historians discussing the reigns of Elizabeth's predecessors. Elizabeth, of course, is surely one of our most famous monarchs, and Susan Duran explains why. We're talking Elizabeth um, in our in our Tudor special here. The, obviously, Elizabeth, there's a lot to say about her, so I expect we'll be trying to cover a lot of ground. But if I asked you what the key moments in her reign were, would you be able to pick a few out that, that are worthy of mention? Well, the first is obviously her accession, mm-hmm. because in some ways that was rather unexpected, and she herself thought she might have to fight for the throne. And she wasn't at all sure how it was going to go, whether the King of France would put up Mary Queen of Scots as a pretender to challenge her right to the throne, but it all went off smoothly. So the first moment of importance is the accession. The second is when she was successful in getting through the Elizabethan church settlement in her first parliament. In April 1559, it was clear that England was going to have a Protestant settlement, despite opposition from Catholic bishops and indeed a couple of important lay people. And I think after that, things are pretty quiet until Mary Queen of Scots comes to England, which does transform the politics of the realm and instills almost a sense of paranoia within England because of the fear that there's going to be a Catholic rebellion designed to put Mary on the throne or there'll be a Catholic crusade where the French and the Spaniards will all rally around Mary, Queen of Scots. And that, of course, explains why Elizabeth won't bring Mary to court uh, in case she... um, is able to build up a faction around her that will challenge Elizabeth. And of course, it explains too why Elizabeth can't allow her to go abroad, because Mary would be as much a danger abroad as she would in the uh, centre of um, government in England. We then get the situation which has affected the way that the reign has been written, as well as future history, whereby Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, are playing this dance with each other um, for many years until until Mary is indeed executed in 1587, which is again another important moment in the reign. After that, I suppose, we'd have to say it was the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Mm-hmm. Um, that was crucially important, both in her own time and for later history. And so many of the films and uh, writings about Elizabeth have focused on that seminal event where England's naval power proved supreme for the very first time. Hmm. I think we would put those down as as the key moments of the reign. Okay. A lot of key moments, obviously. Um, and as you say, she's, she's a, a monarch who has been uh, much studied, much looked at. And uh, certainly there have been a lot of representations of her in film and, uh, and, and in written media. Um, but as a historian, have you been able to draw any conclusions as to what sort of person she actually was, what, what she would have been like in the flesh? It's very difficult. Um, it's with most writers, it's with most um, people in the past, it's difficult. I think for Elizabeth it's particularly difficult because she's always on show, so it's impossible to get to the real Elizabeth, the Elizabeth without the costumes and without the makeup uh, and without the self-fashioning that we we are all seeing mm. um, up front. I think we have to judge Elizabeth as much by what people said about her as well as what she did rather than what she said. And what kind of Elizabeth do I see? I see Elizabeth 
who is cautious but isn't afraid of making decisions. She's often said to be someone who wanted to put off every decision, but she certainly made a decision that she was going to have a Protestant England when she came to the throne. She didn't put that off. Um, she's an Elizabeth who, at the same time, is very cautious. She's not going to make hasty decisions and she'll play for time uh, to wait until she feels that it's safe to make certain decisions. She's someone who obviously has a lot of charm. I mean, it's noted by people even who, who, who aren't trying to uh, get something from her or, or have no reason to be sycophantic towards her. Uh, she's someone who has talent. She is artistically inclined in, in the sense that she enjoys music. She enjoys dancing. Um, she is not a great collector. She's certainly not a builder. So we can't really talk about her as a patron of the arts, but she does enjoy uh, poetry. She does enjoy theatre as well. What else can I say about her? Would, um, would she have been likeable? You know, if, if you were able to know her on a day-to-day -day basis, would you have liked her? She could be someone who demonstrated affection uh, and kindness, small acts of kindness, but she could also be sharp-tongued and she could throw tantrums. I think it's very difficult to know. I suspect I would have liked her. I think I would have admired her for her intelligence and for her circumspection. Hmm. Okay. So that's... We've talked a little bit about the sort of person she was, but what about her key achievements? I mean, you, you, you've covered some of the main events already, but what would you say are the, are the main, the, the, the key achievements that came out of her reign, the key things that either she did or happened during her reign? Well, I think a key achievement is the kind of church settlement she established. Mm. It was Protestant, but it was moderate. And it was just about able to keep on board a wide consensus of opinion. And she stuck to it. She wouldn't allow change. And although she's been criticised by many historians who would like to have seen greater reform in the church, the great advantage was that it brought stability. And yes, there were people who were dissatisfied with the settlements. On the one hand, there was the Catholics, who obviously didn't want Protestantism at all. On the other hand, there were the zealous Protestants, we call Puritans, who wanted the settlement to go much further. Mm. But had she moved in either of those two directions, it would have been incredibly dangerous for England. And I think she knew that. I also think the settlement that she produced was one that was nearest to her heart. She um, liked the ceremony of the church. She didn't want to see it all go. And at the same time, she was a Protestant who put her faith in the Bible, the Word of God as she saw it. And that was a very important part of her Protestantism. Mm. So I think that's an incredibly important achievement and it survived her um, and it was the basis on which the 1662 prayer book um, was introduced and, and is as the basis really of the Anglican liturgy today. Another achievement of Elizabeth was that she restored the coinage. I mean, this doesn't sound like very much, but actually it was terribly important, and right. she thought it was so important that it, that she wanted it to be part of her epitaph. Uh, the work had been, had begun under her sister Mary, but it was through Elizabeth that the very debased coinage um, was refined and brought up to a standard, which meant that inflation could come under control and overseas trade could be more stable an important achievement. She gave support to her merchants who um, needed um, both diplomatic support and sometimes financial support to open up trade in other parts of Europe as well as to begin the explorations to America. 
another achievement was building up the navy, was avoiding going to war against Spain as early as some of her councillors wanted her to, which gave time for the navy to be improved, to be extended, and therefore you had the great achievement of the victory over over Spain in, in 1588. OK, so um, lo- lots of pretty substantial achievements. Are there any failures that you can identify in her own? She wasn't a great success in dealing with Ireland. Right. And although eventually the Irish rebellion of Tyrone or, or the Hugh-O'Neill rising um, was suppressed, it probably needn't have happened. And you can talk about the, the outbreak as being, as being a failure. Um, otherwise, a failure is that she's, she doesn't provide an inspiration for reform that was necessary within the government. She is extremely loyal to her men, and if they were not taking the lead in in introducing uh, changes that were really necessary for the smooth running of government, she she didn't breathe down their neck, she didn't um, push them into introducing any kind of improved governmental um, innovations. So, for example, the finances of the, of, of the country were, were really pretty rusty by the time Elizabeth um, died. She, there needed to be a new way of, of, of devising taxes. There needed to be changes in the administration of church lands. There was a whole wealth of, of reforms that, that would have really improved governmental finances and from which James I suffered when he came to the throne. Um, Elizabeth wasn't personally responsible for that, but she was, she was prepared to take a back seat and, and, and didn't push in any way for, for the kinds of reforms that were necessary. How would you assess her legacy? What would you say is, 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 is her Well, her I suppose it depends when, you're, when, when the end point is. I mean, if you're saying what's her legacy in 1603, then I think one has to say it's stability, that despite enormous problems, despite enormous dangers from abroad, Elizabeth had, had managed to steer England safely through troubled waters. If one's looking at it from the perspective of, of 2010 or 2011, one would say that her greatest legacy was to ensure that England was a Protestant country, that it was independent of Spain, that it had begun the process of building up a navy that could be used not only um, in warfare but also for explorations and later on for the British Empire. So I think England's begins to move in a direction, I don't want to sound too um, a weak his, uh, too much like a weak historian over mm. this, but nevertheless there, there are shifts in, in direction that I think do have an important impact on European history. England is no longer a, a country that's engaged in a hundred years war against France. England is now looking um, elsewhere for its magnificence and for its prestige. We also can say that as far as English history is concerned, Ireland becomes um, very much, I'm not saying this is a good thing at all, but it, 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 it is much more firmly part of the kingdom of, of England than it, than it had been before. Okay. Um, we haven't um, touched on, the, on, on, on one fact, which is probably fairly significant, the fact that she was a woman and that she wasn't uh, married. How, 
How important is that in, in thinking about her reign? Well, it obviously drew a lot of attention at the time, and it's drawn a lot of attention since that time. But in reality, it made very little difference to the political process. Elizabeth governed with exactly the same prerogatives and rights as any male monarch had. She was able to adapt the rituals of monarchy in a way that suited a woman. So, for example, on Maundy Thursday, she would wash the feet of women rather than wash the feet of men. Uh, she would still act as the head of the Knights of the Garter. So actually being a woman didn't make a huge amount of difference. Uh, the answer to Knox, who had challenged the right of women to rule, uh, had been made right at the beginning of the reign. And it was very much helped by the fact that the only challengers to Elizabeth's rule were, in fact, women, uh, whether Mary, Queen of Scots on the one hand or, or Catherine Grey on the other. So being a woman, I think, at the time did not matter in terms of practical politics, as, as one might think. Mm. It has mattered a great deal later on in the way that historians and literary scholars have approached the reign. And virtually all the material that's been coming out over the last few years has focused on aspects of Elizabeth's gender. Yeah. You know, how she writes her, well, her speeches, you know, with the kind of language she's using. Is it gendered? Is it not? Um, the way she presents herself. Um, the kinds of, of symbols associated with her. So as her gender, I think, is, has been overdone. The fact that Elizabeth did not marry was obviously extremely significant in the politics of the reign. Um, much of the reign um, was caught up with the problem of who was going to succeed Elizabeth. And mm. had Elizabeth married and produced an heir, that question would not have been such dynamite, unless, of course, she'd have had a girl or had died in childbirth, which was always a, a possibility. Um, so, so should we get over the gender, stop talking about it now? Have we, have we said enough about it? Well, unless somebody comes up with something very new, I think it's, it's a tired topic. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. That was Dr Susan Duran of Jesus College, Oxford University. Her many publications on the Tudor world include Elizabeth I in the British Library Historic Lives series, published by St Martin's Press. We're running this series on the Tudors to time with the August issue of the magazine, A Tudor Special. We've also produced a special BBC History magazine Tudors audiobook where you can hear full-length interviews that are recorded with all the experts in this Tudor podcast series. So that's half an hour each on Kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI and Queens Mary and Elizabeth. The audiobook costs just £1.99. You can download it via our website, historyextra.com slash audiobooks slash Tudors and that's being distributed by audiogo.co.uk. We've got a new series in the magazine running at the moment called Places That Made Britain, where I've asked historians to nominate key places in Britain's past and to tell me why they matter. Dr Richard Noakes of Exeter University has nominated Porthcurno in Cornwall. And the first question I asked him was, why choose Porthcurno? I chose Porthcurno because it reminds us of the importance of uh, the electric telegraph in Britain and in the British Empire altogether. Um, It's... A, it's one of the most important sites of telecommunication history in the world. Um, at one stage, Porthcurno had 14 cables running out of it, which connected Britain with um, the rest of the world, in particular its uh, colonies and dominions. And it was at Porthcurno that um, hundreds of men were trained to work the telegraphs, which, as it were, kept the empire together and turned this part of Cornwall into the the information superhighway of its day. Um, it doesn't look much uh, from the outside because all the all the cables, as it were, are go under the building, under the sea. So it doesn't look particularly impressive. It doesn't look as spectacular as, say, uh, Goon Hilly, which is, of course, around the coast. But it was much more significant in its day than Goon Hilly was in the 1960s. Um, I think that as a site for uh, the history of empire, the history of technology and science, it's it, it's really battered in the world. Okay, let's let's backtrack a second. What's electric telegraphy? Electric telegraphy is the use of. Um, currents from batteries and other sources to send um, pulses pulses of information through an electric wire. And uh, we've all heard of Morse code as a way of encoding uh, letters of the alphabet. Um, so the electric telegraph is a way of transmitting intelligence through uh, a distance of some kind and... Um, it enables relatively high-speed communication across um, a distance. And when did this technology start to come into its own? The roots of the electric telegraph can be traced back to the very early 19th century, which is when uh, electric current as a means of, uh, of, of, of producing um, effects at a distance was uh, first invented. Um, the real... Uh, developments took place in the 1830s with the like with the likes of Samuel Morse in America and Charles Wheatstone and William Fothergill Cook in Britain. Um, but it was only in the 1840s and 50s 
that um, scientists and engineers began seriously to think about ways of of stretching uh, the electric telegraph under the sea and to connect uh, distant continents together. And that's where Porthcurno comes in, as you were saying. That's because it's it's the uh, landing point for those cables coming in uh, from from well, basically they went around Cornwall, around France, and then down into the Med to India. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Um, the person, the key person behind Porthcurno, is a man called John Pender, who made his money uh, from those very early attempts in the eighteen forties and fifties to um, lay telegraphs uh, across countries and um, under the Atlantic Ocean. And on the back of that, he decided to uh, help Britain solve its imperial problem of communicating with India and decided that Cornwall was strategically the best place to, to have a landing site. So it went from the far west of Cornwall Around um, around the coast of Spain, through the Mediterranean, um, and down towards India. And um, you, you mentioned before that it's Porthcurno is perhaps a, a fairly unprepossessing place at the moment. There's not much um, that that would uh, suggest that it was such an important place in the past. But say in the in the 1870s when the cable was being laid, or the 1880s, what was going on there? Would, would it have been a hive of activity? Um, in 1870, uh, when the first cable was pulled up onto the beach at Porthcurno, um, it was uh, it compri- Porthcurno comprised a few farms. It was uh, pretty isolated and desolate, but um, within ten years, it had become a hive of activity. There were buildings which uh, in which uh, men would received the, um, the signals through the cables from India. There were new buildings where these men slept and, um, and lived and uh, engaged in various leisure activities. And it was because of the cable industry that Porthcurno turned into a town, um, a very small town, um, and it defined the community. And w- was it unique? Were there lots of these sort of landing points or was Porthcurno really the hub for, for the landing points? There were, one of, there were quite a few cable stations in Britain. Um, there was one in Liverpool, uh, which was serving um, the, uh, the Irish connection. And there was one most famously in the west coast of Ireland, um, in Valencia, which was the, um, the point from which the Atlantic cable left towards, uh, towards Canada. But what was really special about Porthcurno was the sheer scale of it. Um, from 1870, when only one cable was coming up the beach, to the interwar period, when there were as many as 14 cables coming up the beach, um, this was by far the biggest cable station in the world. It was also um, a training college. So not only were the men who worked there um, doing their daily job, but they trained there as well. And uh, this is a very, very special place for that reason. And you, you just mentioned the interwar period. Actually, it was important in the Second World War, wasn't it? It was important in the Second World War. Um, we, all, we, t- we tend to think that the cable telegraphy um, was a very, uh, was, wasn't as important as radio or radar. But actually, in the war, in the Second World War, cable telegraphy became even more important. 
um, because it was an alternative, it was uh, um, a way of communicating that didn't have the problems of jamming and spying that you get with radio. And it was so important uh, that the, the Germans, uh, the, the Luftwaffe, um, tried to bomb Povkerno regularly. But fortunately um, for the British, um, the operations room at Povkerno was buried underground in tunnels so that uh, they, they would be protected from, from the Luftwaffe's bombs. And you, and you can still visit those tunnels today, can't you? That's one of the highlights of, of a visit to Porthcano is you can go uh, into the tunnels and, and see all these examples of, of, uh, of, of the former tele- telegraphic equipment. Absolutely. I think for many people, um, where the cable industry really shows itself as a tool of empire is in the context of the war. And if you go to the museum, you can visit um, the tunnels and you can see what the, what the British did to try and protect this global communications network, which was, of course, um, a crucial tool in, in winning the war, um, as it is today with, the, with the, today's problems with um, cyber terrorism and information. Um, the Paul Kerno shows you how important this problem was even during uh, the interwar period and the Second World War. Okay, so I've been to Porthcano on your recommendation. I'm very grateful to you for, for, for suggesting I go there because it's a lovely place to visit, a beautiful beach and an interesting museum. What would you suggest a visitor should most look out for if they make their way down to Porthcano? I would recommend um, a, an exhibition, uh, a very new exhibition that was opened in the presence of Princess Anne, Princess Royal. Um, this is a new exhibition which details the... Uh, the social and cultural history of telegraphy in the late 19th and early 20th century. What's new about this, about this exhibition is that it doesn't just focus on the gadgets and the technical details of telegraphy, it focuses on the, the, the lives of the people who worked the telegraphs, whose, whose lives were changed uh, by the telegraphs. It looks at... Um, what happened locally at Port Kerno when the telegraphs arrived, and what happened in those distant parts of the British Empire uh, that were affected by the global telecommunications network. It's an exhibition that uses a plethora of photographs and documents and artefacts to try and enrich our understanding of the place of telegraphy in the British past. Okay, final question. Um, I think uh, at Porthcurno, um the, 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 the Telegraph is branded as the Victorian Internet. How accurate is that? How important was telegraphy as a means of communication during the days of empire? I think that the Victorian Internet is a useful but problematic term. It's useful because it highlights the significant changes to people's lives when you allow them. To communicate very quickly. So the, the psychological impact on the Victorians caused by the telegraph was perhaps comparable to the impact of the internet on our lives. What I find difficult with the idea of the Victorian internet though is the access because we regard the, the telegraph as having um, a widespread impact on the Victorians 
But let's not forget that the telegraph was a quite an expensive tool to use. The telegraphs that, that go out of Port Curnow um, were very expensive to use and would not have been within the purchasing power of very many people at all. The difference here then is with the internet, which is accessible to far many more people. And so I, so I think for that reason, it's um, the, the idea of the Victorian internet is, is a little bit problematic, but it's very useful though. That was Richard Noakes, who teaches at the University of Exeter. You can read the feature on Porth Kerno in the August edition of BBC History magazine. And if you like what you see, you might also like the new BBC History magazine book, 100 Places That Made Britain, written by myself, published by BBC Books this year. If you want to know more about Porth Kerno, the museum's website is www.porthkerno.org.uk. Finally, I've been chatting with historian and TV presenter Dan Snow, who's fronting a primetime BBC One history series called National Treasures Live at the moment. For five weeks, the show is touring the country, coming live from some of Britain's finest heritage sites. So I asked Dan to preview the second episode. The second week of this fantastic series, we're going to be going to one of my favourite places in the UK, and that is the naval, the historic dockyard at Portsmouth. One of the most important dockyards, one of the most important ports in the world, uh, and a place that's so central to the, to the unfolding of our, our national story. Uh, we'll be looking particularly at um, HMS Warrior, world's, uh, well, Britain's first ironclad, built uh, in, in response, terrified response to the French launching their ironclad, uh, ironclad ship. And HMS Warrior is, a, is kind of the, the, the third in that triumvirate of, of famous ships they've got there, but it kind of gets overlooked a bit, doesn't it? But actually, it's really important. Warrior does get overlooked, it's, it's, it, but it's phenomenal. It's, it's a snapshot of a particular time in the 19th century. I mean, the, the amazing about the Warrior is it, was, it went from being the most powerful ship in the world, basically making every other warship in the world obsolete, to itself being obsolete within about 12 years. Yeah. Uh, and that just shows the rate of improvement, the rate of technological advancement. So we think we're living through kind of revolution of communications and um, medicine and media and all that sort of stuff. But actually, in the 19th century, uh, ships were ships were basically outdated as soon as they were built. Greg Wallace will be cooking up all sorts of food from various periods of history in uh, the galley on HMS Warrior, which of course at the time was state of the art. Uh, and then I'll also be looking at. Um, the, the King Arthur myth was it was it real? Is there any is there any basis to it? Uh, with the um, strangely with the celebrity hairdresser Michael Douglas from the One Show, he'll, he'll, I'm trying to enthuse him about British history. And, and this week on our on our road trip in our 1980s camper van, we go and have a look around uh, Glastonbury Tor and Cadbury Castle and some of the sites associated with the Arthur myth. Sure, Glastonbury Tor, Glastonbury famously where where Arthur was was buried apparently. Edward the First. Um, wanted Arthur to be found and he was at Glastonbury and he was then buried with much pomp right in the abbey right in the centre of the abbey in front of the high altar with Edward I himself uh, present and of course that's you know we're talking about this because we're talking about myth and the importance of the past really and how it how it, it motivates and informs the present Ed, Edward claimed to be overlord of Britain king of Britain Arthur some of the Arthur myths had suggested that Arthur held that position Edward wanted to claim direct descent from him spiritually and and physically and so Arthur was found in England rather than of course in in Wales or Scotland Uh, and and so Edward was claiming him 
Okay, back to the historic dockyard. So you're, you're eschewing um, the Mary Rose and uh, HMS Victory. I suppose Mary Rose is, is under wraps at the moment. Mary Rose is under wraps, but uh, hopefully we'll be looking at some of the, um, some of the, the fines yeah. made on that. Uh, have they taken the mast off the Victory as well? I think, I, think they're, I think they're knocking something down. I think, but, right, annoyingly, they are fixing the Victory up at yeah. the moment. But the Victory, all we, all we got, yeah, we'll do, we could crawl around on the, on the gun deck and it will still be magnificent. Such, yeah. a, such an incredibly resonant place. Yeah. So uh, you, you want people to come down to the, the historic dockyard? Historic dockyard is one of the best, I mean, how I dare hardly call it a museum, really. It's one of the best sort of visitor experiences in the UK. It's got, uh, it's got enough there for several lifetimes uh, to see and, and touch and clamber on. Uh, and uh, we'd love people to come down. If they get in touch with the Portsmouth Historic Dockyard through their website or on their Twitter, uh, then we'd love a big crowd and um, hopefully get a chance to meet some of you. Second episode of National Treasures Live is showing on Wednesday, the 17th of August at 7:30 p.m. on BBC One. Of course, as ever, we're keen to know what you think about the podcast, so do please email any observations to podcasthistoryextra.com or contact us on Twitter or Facebook. That's it for this week. Just a reminder that the website for our new Tudor audiobook is historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash Tudors, and that costs just one pound ninety nine. I do hope you'll tune in to our next edition next week.